A former Neiman fellow at Harvard, James M. Scott, is the author of Target Tokyo, Jimmy Doolittle and the Raid that Avenged Pearl Harbor, which was a 2016 Pulitzer Prize finalist and was named one of the best books of the year by Kirkus, the Christian Science Monitor, and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. He spoke here about that book when he delivered the 2017 Christian Lecture. James's other work includes The War Below, the story of three submarines that battled Japan, The Attack on the Liberty, the untold story of Israel's deadly 1967 assault on a U.S. spy ship, which won the Rear Admiral Samuel Elliott Morrison Award, and his newest book, and the subject of today's lecture, Rampage, MacArthur, Yamashita, and the Battle of Manila, which was released today. James lives with his wife and two children in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and please join me in giving a warm welcome to James Scott. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing today? Good, I trust. Well, what's great to be back at the uh, Virginia Museum, I guess I still think of it as the Virginia Historical Society, so I, uh, I, uh, I've had to adjust, and uh, my GPS had to adjust this morning, too, because it, 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 it threw me for a loop, even though I was coming from just a mile away at the time. So uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you to Graham for all the uh, hard work and setting up today and getting everybody out and for the invitation to come back up. It's a, it's a real treat to get to come out today, which is the official launch of Rampage. It comes out literally today is the day. And to be able to have so many folks that turn out on a, uh, for a lunchtime lecture is, a real, is, is really awesome. So thank you all for, t for taking the time to come out. Um, so, Rampage, the story of the Battle of Manila. For American General Douglas MacArthur, driven from the Philippines at the start of World War II, he famously vowed to return, and Rampage is the untold story of his homecoming. The 29-day battle to retake the city of Manila proved a fight unlike any other in the Pacific War. A bloody urban brawl that forced American soldiers to battle block by block home by home, and even room by room. The end result was the catastrophic destruction of the city and a rampage by Japanese troops that terrorized the civilian population. Landmarks were demolished, neighborhoods torched, countless women raped, their husbands and children murdered. An estimated 100,000 civilians died in a massacre really as heinous as the rape of Nanking. Not only did this battle give American war planners a glimpse of what an invasion of the Japanese homeland might involve, but those brief weeks in, in February 1945 forever transformed the city once known as the Pearl of the Orient and decimated generations of Filipino families, the ripples of which still echo through lives even today, almost 75 years later. Now to truly appreciate the Battle of Manila, it's important to rewind to the beginning of the 20th century. The United States had captured the Philippines along with Cuba during the Spanish-American War, but unlike Cuba, for which we granted independence, we decided to hang on to the Philippines. The rationale was best described by Arthur MacArthur, who was the father of General Douglas MacArthur, and who had helped capture Manila during that war and served as one of the early military governors. Quote, the archipelago, he told Congress in 1902, is the finest group of islands in the world. Its strategic position is unexcelled by that of any other position on the globe. Now, American policymakers realized that Manila, which would serve as America's front door to the business markets of India, China, and Malaysia, needed a facelift to help attract industry and reflect America's growing global status. 
To spearhead that transformation, we hired Daniel Burnham, who's the famous municipal planner and city architect, who over the course of his career helped cities like Chicago. He's the one who came up with Lakeshore Drive. He helped San Francisco. He oversaw the redo of the National Mall in Washington and was the architect behind Union Station, which is still there and in use today right by Capitol Hill. Now, Burnham saw incredible potential in Manila with its vast natural resources, its centuries-old churches, and also the ancient walled city of Intramuros, the 160-acre historic heart of Manila, uh, which was founded literally right after, which was built right after the city's founding in 1571. Quote, possessing the Bay of Naples, the winding river of Paris, and the canals of Venice, Burnham wrote, Manila has before it an opportunity in, uh, unique in the history of modern times, the opportunity to create a unified city equal to the greatest of the Western world with the unparalleled and priceless addition of a tropical setting. Now, in the four decades leading up to World War II, Manila developed into a small slice of America, home not only to thousands of American service members, uh, but employees of companies like General Electric, Del Monte, and B.F. Goodrich. Often called the Pearl of the Orient, the city boasted an incredible quality of life. Department stores and social clubs, golf courses, swimming pools, bowling alleys, even air-conditioned movie theaters. Quote, Manila is by far the most beautiful of all cities in the Orient, the New York Times wrote in 1932. From the top of the university club, it seems half hidden in a canopy of trees, green everywhere, a city within a park. Now, on the eve of World War II, one of Manila's most prominent residents was none other than General Douglas MacArthur, who lived atop the Manila Hotel in the penthouse with his wife and four-year-old son. Like his father, MacArthur's life was long intertwined with the Philippines, where he'd served often throughout his career, beginning with right after his graduation from West Point in 1903. Quote, in this city, he once said, my mother had died, my wife had been courted, my son had been born. Now, for MacArthur, who is the son of a career military officer who'd spent much of his life pinballing around the United States and the world, Manila was really the closest thing he had to a hometown. More than just the MacArthur's, however, enjoyed it. Quote, to live in Manila in 1941, remembered CBS News correspondent Bill Dunn, was to enjoy the good life. But that good life ended on December 7th, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and invaded the Philippines launching the United States into a war. Hoping to avoid a bloody battle for the capital, MacArthur declared Manila an open city and evacuated his forces to the Bataan Peninsula in the fortified island of Corregidor. For MacArthur, this was far more than just a strategic defeat. He was abandoning his home, forced to reduce his entire life into the contents of just two suitcases. The family evacuated so fast that they left their Christmas tree still standing, didn't even have time to take it down. Japanese troops fanned out through the capital in early 1942, rounding up thousands of American civilians who were left behind and interning them at the University of Santo Tomas, which was just across the Pasig River. MacArthur ultimately endured 77 days in the tunnels of Corregidor before escaping under the cover of darkness in March 1942 with his wife and son and a handful of senior aides. For MacArthur, this was an agonizing event forced to leave behind thousands of Filipino and American soldiers, soldiers who had trusted him, soldiers who would soon face the infamous death march followed by years in Japan's notorious prisoner of war camps. Upon reaching Australia, MacArthur made a public promise, I shall return. And those three words would guide him as the weeks, 
turned to months and then years. Now, Manila suffered greatly during the three years of the enemy's occupation. Japanese forces looted food supplies and department stores, stole farm equipment, and left fields to rot. Store shelves sat empty. Basic supplies like medicine vanished. Manila's economy collapsed, and social fabric began to unravel. An army of beggars flooded the streets, while others resorted to thievery, going so far as to plunder graves in search of things like gold teeth, dentures, eyeglasses, even clothing, anything that could be bartered or sold to buy a fistful of rice. Families unable to care for their children went so far as to abandon them to orphanages or even sell them. Starvation, meanwhile, ran rampant, claiming as many as 500 souls a day. Marshal Lachalco, a Manila attorney, whose diary captured the horror that many endured, described it best in a December 1944 entry. Quote, Today we are living under conditions in which only the fittest among us can hope to survive. And I think this quote you see on this slide here sums it up better than anything. And this is actually a quote from an August, 19, uh, August 1944 intelligence report that says, it is cheaper to buy a child than a hog in the city of Manila today. That gives you a real sense of how desperate things had when it was, human life was devalued less than that of, of being able to buy a pig. Now, American families locked up behind the iron gates of Santo Tomas suffered equally. The earlier ingenuity that these internees had shown transforming this college campus into a functioning small city uh, faded as the daily caloric intake uh, plummeted and starvation took hold. A medical survey conducted January 1945 revealed that the average male internee had lost 51 pounds, the average female 32. To survive, desperate internees ate dogs, cats, pigeons, even rats, which as you can see from this diary entry here, were selling for eight pesos each on the camp's black market. Quote, I was worried about a lump in my stomach, Louise Goldthorpe wrote in another one of her diary entries. Then I found it was my backbone I was feeling. By January 1945, the nearly 3,700 internees starved to death at a rate of three to four a day. They were surviving at that point literally off of less than 600 calories a day. These five internees lost a combined total of 273 pounds. Quote, we survived on hope, one of those internees recalled. Hope that the American forces would arrive. And MacArthur's forces did in fact return, January 9th, 1945. Hitting the beaches of Linganian Gulf, in preparation for the 100-mile drive south to liberate Manila. Now, standing in MacArthur's way was Japanese General Tomoyuki Yamashita, whose job was to turn the Philippines into a tar pit, to bog down MacArthur and his forces en route north to the Japanese homeland. Now, Yamashita had proven himself early in the war, capturing Singapore from the British and earning the nickname the Tiger of Malaya. But his rivalry with War Minister Hideki Tojo had led Tojo to park him for the remainder of the conflict on the war's sidelines, sending him up to Manchuria, where he was to guard the wall against a, uh, or stand the wall against a potential Russian invasion. Only after Tojo was ousted following the fall of the Mariana Islands in the summer of 1944 was Yamashita's career resurrected, and he was sent to the Philippines to stand in MacArthur's way. Just as MacArthur had come back to the Philippines to redeem his earlier promise, 
so too was Yamashita equally as certain of his fate. He had come to die. But he did not plan to do so in Manila. Instead, he divided up his forces into several small armies, and he dispatched them throughout the mountains and jungles of the Philippines in order to fight a protracted guerrilla war. In contrast, however, Rear Admiral Sanji Iwabuchi, who commanded the Manila Naval Defense Forces, had no intention of abandoning the capital, even if Yamashita had demanded it. Iwabuchi had been a failed sea captain early in the war. He had a ship shot out from under him off of Guadalcanal, and, and he would survived, which in Japanese culture had been a big disgrace. He spent much of the rest of the war parked behind a desk until the deaths of so many more capable seafaring officers had led to his career resurrection, and he was sent to Manila. And in Manila, he saw an opportunity to redeem himself by creating an urban quagmire, similar to Stalingrad, if you will. To accomplish this, he divided up his 17,000 soldiers and Marines into three geographical commands that covered northern, central, and southern Manila. Iwabuchi's ultimate plan for the defense of the city centered around the old walled city of Intramuros, the ancient citadel guarded by towering walls, some of which were 40 feet thick. Around the walled city, he planned a perimeter of government buildings, and these were all newer constructions. They were built to withstand earthquakes and typhoons, you know, big concrete structures, small fortresses, really. To make it even harder for the advancing American troops, the Japanese barricaded the insides of these buildings with tables and desks, going so far, actually, as to build staggered walls in the passageways, filling them with dirt, leaving just enough room over which you could throw a hand grenade. Iwabuchi's forces likewise booby-trapped intersections, 50 of them throughout central Manila. This is the corner of Dart and Oregon Streets in Manila, in which they had taken 25 oil drums and filled them with concrete, sunk another 16 railroad axles into the asphalt, and then planted landmines, including old beach mines here, all of which was covered by a pillbox with a machine gun up in the top right-hand corner there. This is actually a photograph of another primitive Japanese tank trap in downtown Manila. And you can see here they've taken two truck bodies, wired them together, and anchored them with a heavy cable on the tree off to the side there, and then used logs, if you will, propped up against them, all of which, of course, is designed to sort of barricade and keep the Americans out. Now, to retake Manila, the American forces carved up the capital. The 37th Infantry and the 1st Cavalry would approach the city from the north, the infantry would then swing toward the waterfront while the cavalry enveloped the city from the east. The 11th Airborne would then drive up from the south and close the city's back door. Now, MacArthur was convinced that the Japanese would evacuate the city just as he had done at the beginning of the war. He was so confident in this fact that his staff began planning a liberation parade for Manila, down to picking the individual jeep assignments of his senior officers and even planning the parade routes that went past MacArthur's old home atop the Manila Hotel. Complicating the challenge for American war planners at this time, however, was the mix of intelligence that was coming out of Manila. In December 1944, the Filipino guerrillas who were in the city, their radio messages indicated that the Japanese were actually preparing to leave, which Yamashita had ordered. Trucks headed with troops and supplies, things like that, evacuating the city. But by January 1945, the intelligence coming out of the city had changed. The guerrillas were now reporting the fact that intersections were being barricaded, that pillboxes were being constructed and, and landmines being planted, all of it pointing to the fortification of the city. Now, residents of Manila, who for three long years had waited and prayed for Americans to return, watched this growing fortification with alarm and terror. 
quote, defeat is a bitter pill that the Japanese will not swallow, one resident wrote in her diary. Defeat is the one thing that can turn them into beasts. Now at 6.35 p.m. on February 3rd, the American cavalry rolled into Manila, prepared to liberate the city. In the northern suburbs, American troops were greeted like celebrities. And nowhere was that more true than at Santo Tomas, where cavalrymen arrived at 8.30 p.m. that night. Internee Tressa Roca captured the excitement in her diary. Quote, before the men in the tanks knew what was going on, they were pulled out of them and lifted on the shoulders of our scrawny fellow internees. It was impossible to hold back the worshiping and joyous internees. That night, starving internees feasted on army rations while American troops spoiled the children with candy. Frank Robertson, a reporter with International News Service, described just such a scene in his first dispatch from the camp. Quote, one of the most unforgettable things was the slow smile of wonderment on the pale, tense face of a girl of four tasting chocolate for the first time. Of course, many in the city were starving as well, and American troops throughout the Battle of Manila would find themselves swarmed by hungry Filipinos desperate for food. Here, a young Filipino girl clings to a box of army rations that were given to her by some troops. But the excitement of America's arrival proved short-lived. Iwabuchi gave the order on February 3rd, the same day that the American cavalry reached Manila, to begin the destruction of the city. Incendiary squads swept through districts north of the river and began setting fires and dynamiting buildings. MacArthur's pilot, Dusty Rhodes, witnessed the scene from the air. Quote, the spectacle was an appalling sight. The entire downtown section of the city was a mass of flames, he wrote in his diary. Flames rising 200 feet in the air. Manila residents grabbed what belongings they could carry and fled. General Robert Baitler, commander of the 37th Infantry, described it in his report, quote, we were powerless to stop it. We had no way of knowing in which of the thousands of places the demolitions were being controlled. Big modern reinforced concrete and steel office buildings were literally blown from their foundations to settle crazily in twisted heaps. In addition, the Japanese blew all the bridges over the river which divided the city. After destroying the city's northern districts, the Japanese then fell back across the river into central Manila, forcing the American troops to cross the Pasig River and began what would prove to be an incredibly bloody urban fight. Block by block, American soldiers pressed deeper into the city, frequently slowed by the fortifications at intersections, which required troops to blast their way through adjacent buildings in order to attack the rear of a pillbox. Infantry Major Chuck Ken summarized it best, quote, gains were measured more by street intersections cleared than by city blocks secured. Just as perilous were the fortified buildings, where Japanese Marines used the higher floors to target the advancing Americans, dropping Molotov cocktails and even aerial bombs onto the sidewalks below. Quote, the preferred solution was to use cannons to blast the upper floors to rubble and then move in, one infantry officer said. An equally favored alternative was to burn the building. When these wouldn't work, riflemen moved in to take the building floor by floor. One of the worst such battles occurred inside Rizal Hall, which is pictured here at the University of the Philippines in downtown Manila, where American troops, cavalrymen, literally inched room by room 
hurling grenades ahead of them to drive out the Japanese. This went on for two days inside this building until finally at the end of the second day as the sun began to set, neither the Americans nor the Japanese would give ground. So both sides decided that they would spend the night inside this wrecked building together. The Americans were there on the second floor in the darkness, their fingers pressed against the triggers of the rifles that night. When they began to hear the Japanese on the opposite side of the building singing, this is from their report. Quote, this commotion went on for about 45 minutes, culminating in a final burst of song and loud shouting, followed immediately by many reports of exploding grenades and dynamite charges. The cavalrymen continued to listen in the darkness. More singing, followed by grenades, and then silence. These detonations went off at half-hour intervals until about 4 a.m., at which time a lasting silence finally settled over the building. At daybreak, as soon as the sun began to come up, the American troops moved in across the building to find that 77 Japanese Marines had blown themselves up the night before while they had listened. Now, MacArthur had refused to allow planes to bomb the city for fear of killing civilians, but he relented and permitted artillery after American troops had suffered heavy losses crossing the passing. Quote, from then on, putting it crudely, we really went to town, General Baitler recalled. Over the course of the battle, American forces would fire more than 42,000 artillery rounds into the city. Between Japanese demolitions and American artillery, Manila was being destroyed from the inside and the out. Residents, men, women, and children had no choice but retreat below ground, where conditions inside cramped air raid shelters devolved as the hours turned to days. Bunkers built to house a single family often held multiple. And with so many bodies pressed together in such a tight space, the air inside stagnated and the heat soared. Manila resident Hans Steiner, in a letter to his mother, described his experience. Quote, we lived like dogs. All around us were fires and explosions. It was the best imagination of hell one could get. And, of course, such shelters proved easy prey for marauding Japanese troops who often threw hand grenades inside to target those families. That was the case for this gentleman here who had his cheek blown off from shrapnel. He's actually waiting in this photograph outside San Lazaro Hospital in Manila, which was so overrun by refugees that he had to literally take up a position on the outside stairs. Many others proved too injured to walk, including this woman who had to be placed in a basket for transportation to an aid station by her neighbors. In his diary, Santo Tomas and Ternit Robert Weigel described the parade of wounded who came to the university in search of help from the American doctors. Quote, they are so far beyond recognition that in many cases, one can't tell whether they are men or women, boys or girls, dead or alive. Now, by February 9th, Iwabuchi realized that the fight was largely lost. The Americans were across the river and pressing deep into Manila. Its fortifications along the southern border likewise threatened to collapse. The Americans had far more firepower and far more troops. At that point, the fight took a very evil turn, devolving from a battle over one of Asia's great cities into one of the worst human catastrophes of World War II. An examination of the timeline of the dozens of atrocities that occurred in Manila point to February 9th as the fulcrum on which the violence shifted from attacks against suspected Filipino guerrillas to organized mass extermination. 
American war crimes investigators would later tally 27 major atrocities that occurred just inside Manila. The Japanese tossed babies in the air, skewering them on the ends of their bayonets. Troops decapitated hundreds of others with swords and burned thousands to death alive. The lucky ones received a bullet. In one such example, Japanese Marines stormed the Red Cross headquarters, shooting and bayoneting more than 50 civilians who had taken refuge there, including two infants, one just 10 days old. The Japanese likewise burned to death more than 500 other men, women, and children inside the German Club, which was a social hall in Manila, where many residents had sought refuge from the artillery and from the fires. Troops then forced hundreds of other civilians into the dining hall of St. Paul's College, which is pictured here, where they rigged the chandeliers with explosives and then dynamited it, killing 360 people. One of the more gruesome crimes, the Japanese converted a home on Singalong Street into a house of horror. Troops cut a hole in an upstairs floor and then marched blindfolded men upstairs and then forced them to kneel over that hole where Marines then cut their head off with a sword before kicking the bodies into the uh, hole and down into the first floor below. War crimes investigators, by counting skulls, later determined that 200 men died inside this residence. Nine, however, survived, which is pretty miraculous. These are actually photographs of two of the survivors showing their wounds. This is a sketch done in March 1945 by another survivor that sort of shows the layout of the home, which eventually burned uh, in downtown Manila. And of course, the atrocities went beyond murder. The Japanese rounded up thousands of women, locking many of them inside these four buildings, the last one there on the end being the Bayview Hotel, which was Jean MacArthur's first home when she moved to Manila. There, in rooms where tourists had once enjoyed Manila's legendary sunsets, the Japanese troops assaulted hundreds of women. Quote, I was raped between 12 and 15 times during that night. I cannot remember exactly how many times one victim later testified. I was so tired and horror-stricken that it became a living nightmare. The Japanese did not discriminate. They killed men and women, the old and the young, the strong and the infirm. Alongside thousands of Filipinos, they slaughtered Russians, Spaniards, Germans, Americans, Indians, as well as two Supreme Court justices, the family of a senator, and scores of priests. Quote, the list of known dead that has come to my attention sounds like a who's who of the Philippines, Attorney Marshall Lachalka wrote in his diary. Those residents who were able began that long march out of the city, a dangerous journey through an apocalyptic wasteland. It was a scene described by Life magazine photographer Carl Mydens. Quote, all morning we had seen the long files of people walking mutely rearward past the advancing infantry. Some of them limped with improvised wound dressings. Many of them walked, heaven knows how, with open wounds. The Americans were so inundated with escaping refugees that they had to build a catwalk over one of their makeshift bridges in order to ease the flow out of the city. Now, by the morning of February 23rd, American forces had isolated the last of Iwabuchi's troops inside the walled city of Intramuros and a handful of surrounding government buildings. The fight to retake the walled city began with a massive artillery barrage at 7.30 a.m., one so destructive that it turned day into night. This is literally a view down the Pasig River towards the walled city there in the distance. 
and you can actually see all the black smoke coming up, that sort of rising above it there. Gives you a sense of just how destructive it really was. One hour, American forces fired a staggering 10,000 artillery rounds into a 160-acre area. Every second of that bombardment saw an average of three shells fired, creating a continuous rolling thunder for those residents trapped inside it was like being caught beneath a freight train. Quote, we could not even see each other because of all the smoke, one later said. We all thought we were going to die. At 8.30 a.m., the assault troops moved in. Quote, the ensuing silence, recalled one journalist, was even louder than the bombardment. Once inside, troops discovered that the survivors were almost exclusively women and children. War crimes investigators later determined that the Japanese had killed an estimated 4,000 men in the days leading up to the siege. Japanese had locked many of them inside the cells at Fort Santiago, which was an old Spanish prison there inside the walled city, and burned them to death. Hundreds of others were found piled one on top of another inside the old underground dungeons uh, that dated back literally to the Spanish Inquisition. Many of the children rescued were now orphans, including these three, one carrying a bucket of utensils and the other in the bottom right-hand corner, you'll see his baby doll. But the battle was not over. America still had to eliminate the last of Iwabuchi's forces inside the handful of government buildings that rimmed the walled city. America blasted the legislature with artillery and then sent in assault troops. The building pictured here finally fell at noon on February 28th. Troops then pounded the agriculture and finance buildings. Iwabuchi decided to make his final stand inside the agricultural building. Quote, if we run out of bullets, we will use grenades, he told his men. If we run out of grenades, we will cut down the enemy with swords. If we break our swords, we will kill them by sinking our teeth in their throats. But Iwabuchi's vigor withered under the onslaught of America's merciless guns, which pulverized the walls and the columns of the building, exposing the, the, the sinuous veins of rebar and the walls around him. Iwabuchi had presided over one of the most barbaric massacres of World War II. His troops had wantonly slaughtered tens of thousands of men, women, and children in the most cruel and barbarous ways. Survival was not an option, and he knew it. So he summoned the last of his remaining forces inside the agricultural building, and he apologized for leading them to doom. Quote, if anyone has the courage to escape, please do so, he instructed them. If not, please take your lives here. The admiral then retreated to his quarters inside the building, where armed with a knife, he slid open his belly. A handful of Japanese troops did, in fact, surrender. The Marine pictured here, coming out of the agricultural building soon after. But most, however, chose to die. And on March 3, 1945, 29 days after American troops had first rolled into Manila, the battle for the city finally ended. The fight to retake the Philippine capital had resulted in the deaths of 16,665 Japanese, the near total destruction of Iwabuchi's forces. In contrast, MacArthur's men suffered a little over 1,000 killed and about 5,500 wounded. Civilians bore the brunt of the horror with an estimated 100,000 killed, many of them slaughtered by the Japanese. The dead were often so disfigured that relatives had to identify them through clothing, keychains, and cigarette cases. Those who found the remains often were the lucky ones. Others would have no resolution. 
sentiment best captured in a letter by Santo Tomas survivor John Osborne. Quote, with a heavy heart full of pity I have during these recent days and weeks, observed the searchers, the seekers after lost loved ones. Daily they have gone out the Espana gate, hoping to find some trace of relative or friend to change the dreadful uncertainty to certainty, though it be the certainty of death. First, they visit the site of the old home, today now probably but a heap of ashes and broken walls, then to the homes of relatives and friends for news of the loss. Finally, they take to the streets, just looking at the dead, who today are numerous. Over the city of Manila hung that awful stench of death. Worse than the smell, remembered infantry major Chuck Hen, was the taste of death, which settled on the tongue. Quote, no amount of spitting, he recalled, could clear it away. The battle from Manila had destroyed 613 city blocks, an area containing 11,000 buildings, from churches and schools to banks to entire neighborhoods. More than 200,000 residents were left homeless. A post-war American survey estimated that the damage to Manila by today's standards, by today's figures, would run in excess of $10 billion. And beyond the structural losses were the cultural ones. From historic churches and museum paintings to statues and priceless literary works, all of which was destroyed and lay under the ashes and rubble of the city. And of course, the economy was in shambles, a sentiment best captured by Abraham Hartendorf at Santo Tomas. Quote, the manager of one of Manila's oil companies, in speaking of rebuilding his plant, stated that he would have to begin again at the beginning with a land survey. Amid this sea of destruction, MacArthur returned to Manila to find his own home in ruins. Gone was his vast personal library, his father's Civil War medals and mementos, his son Arthur's baby book, a loss that crushed Jean MacArthur. Quote, you wanted to know about my apartment at the hotel, she wrote in a letter to a friend. Of that, as well as everything else I know in Manila, it is gone. Now, General Yamashita remained elusive until the end of the war when he walked out of the jungle and surrendered. He was put on trial in the fall of 1945 in the first war crimes trial in all of Asia, accused of failing to control his troops. Yamashita blamed everything on Iwabuchi, even though evidence showed he was in touch with the Admiral throughout most of the battle and could have intervened had he wanted to. Furthermore, Yamashita was no stranger to this level of bloodshed. His own troops had committed similar atrocities after the defeat of the British in Singapore, while his chief of staff in the Philippines, Akira Muto, had been one of the principal architects of the rape of Nanking in 1937 and 1938. Over the course of 32 days, the Battle of Manila was replayed in a battered courtroom before a panel of five judges and 16,000 spectators who turned out sitting shoulder to shoulder each day to watch this proceedings. Parade of 286 witnesses, doctors, lawyers, teachers, even gravediggers, testified about what happened in the city during those several weeks. Yamashita was convicted December 7, 1945, but his dogged defense lawyers appealed that conviction all the way to the United States Supreme Court, but he ultimately lost. February 23, 1946, he was taken to a sugarcane field 40 miles south of Manila, where there, stripped of all of his decorations and even his officer's uniform, he was hanged. <laughs> 
Now, Yamashita's execution did little to provide solace for the victims, many of whom would battle years of physical torment. Others wrestled with emotional wounds. Scores more struggled to understand the barbarity inflicted upon them. Quote, it was just total hatred and savagery, said survivor Johnny Roca. You cannot explain it otherwise. Nearly a half century after the battle, survivors formed an organization, the Memorare Manila 1945 Foundation, dedicated to preserving the story of the civilian sacrifices during the city's liberation. To memorialize those killed, the organization erected a statue in, inside the old walled city of Intramuros of a weeping mother cradling a dead infant, surrounded by other dead and dying figures. The inscription on the base of that statue provides a powerful epitaph. Quote, this memorial is dedicated to all those innocent victims of war, many of whom went nameless and unknown to a common grave or never even knew a grave at all, their bodies having been consumed by fire or crushed to dust beneath the rubble of ruins. Let this monument be the gravestone for each and every one. And that concludes my formal uh, remarks. I'm happy to take any questions that, uh, that folks may have. So thank you all very much. I wanted to ask you about the year, if you've read Jim Webb's book on uh, uh, the Emperor's General when he goes through this and uh, supposedly MacArthur was trying to be made look fairly good and the, he wasn't going to hurt, hurt the Emperor's brother who was, or uncle who was responsible for the rape of Nanking. Mm -hmm. And the, the claim there is, as some of Yamash, Yamashita's uh, lawyers claimed, that, that the charges against him were unfounded and they put the blame under the admiral, who apparently was not no longer under his command. I, I don't know yeah. if you read the book and you're familiar with. Uh, no, his, uh, I, I've not read the book because it's, it's fiction. But I, but I'm very familiar with the trial and, and, and sort of the underlying uh, uh, sort of arguments of it. And, and the trial was very controversial uh, back in the back in the time in 1945, and, and it remains so today as well. And the reason being is that MacArthur, that the the, the regulations that govern the, the trial were actually drafted by MacArthur and his staff. So it was not a traditional American military court-martial or a normal military criminal proceeding or, or, just, or even civilian uh, criminal proceeding. It was a hybrid. In fact, it was called in the press at the time an allied legal laboratory. Uh, and, so, and, and they allowed controversial things like hearsay, even triple hearsay, to be admitted. And hearsay is not allowed in a U.S. courtroom. And, and what it essentially is is when someone testifies about what someone else told them. And in the rights of an American defendant, you're allowed to cross-examine your accusers, and this prevents that from happening if somebody is telling them what somebody else told them. So that was one of the most controversial elements of that trial. Um, and so, you know, the, the, there was no smoking gun, you're right, that tied Yamashita directly to these atrocities. Now, we did find, the U.S. did find, documents and orders and things like that that described how best to kill civilians. And a lot of these were done by Iwabuchi's people. And Iwabuchi, of course, was his subordinate. Uh, and they said things like, you know, when you're going to kill civilians because there's an ammunition shortage, it's best if you group them all into buildings and you, you burn them uh, or you throw them into rivers and things like that. So there was a lot of documentary evidence and sort of how to go about these crimes, but none of it directly tied to Yamashita. So he was tried more on the idea that he should have known that this was going on, that this wasn't 
a, a simple case of a handful of, of, of Japanese Marines who went haywire, but this was a much larger, more organized killings of all these civilians, and so therefore he should have known. Yamashita's lawyers, and they did a really a dogged defense of it, in fact, they literally until their death and defended the case and defended Yamashita, said that, you know, really, uh, they, that the argument they made was that it was a rogue admiral, which was Iwabuchi, who had been the one that sort of was the architect of all of this. But the challenge with that argument in the eyes of the American prosecutors was that that was that, that what happened in Manila, were, there were 27 major atrocities that took place in Manila, but there were 300 atrocities that took place and were documented island-wide throughout the Philippines. And so that didn't explain the deaths of 25,000 Filipinos in Batangas or the deaths of thousands of others in Cebu and these other places, that it really, it really was more of a culture, uh, if you will, inside the, the Japanese army that had permitted this type of behavior to take place. And what happened in Manila was not, was not an anomaly. You know, they had the rape of Nanking. You had the death of 50,000 people after the Singapore. In the wake of the Doolittle Raid, which I spoke about here about a year ago, 250,000 Chinese were killed. So really what happened, it was more of a pattern of this type of behavior that took place uh, in a lot of, following the Japanese army, the Imperial Army around, around Asia, if you will. So that's kind of the bigger, that's kind of all of it in a nutshell. And so that, for all of those reasons, of course, is, the, is why Yamashita's uh, his execution, his trial has remained controversial. And I think more than anything, what is, uh, if you go and you, you talk to the Filipinos about it, you talk to their historians about it, is Yamashita, and he played the role of a figurehead that had to be punished. And at the end of the day, you couldn't look at this level of barbarity and this destruction and not have someone to hold accountable. And, and, and it, that's the role he ultimately played in 1945, uh, to assuage the anger and the violence of the Filipino population. Uh, Somebody had to pay. In fact, one of, one of the, uh, it was an Associated Press reporter, and he said that when he was out, he, uh, that the guards were out, they took all the Japanese prisoners of war and they made them go clean up the cities and th um, streets and things like that afterwards, that they had to keep their guns trained not on the prisoners of war, but on the civilians, because the civilians were so hostile that you know, they would be the ones to attack them. So kind of a long answer, I apologize, but that's, <laughs> it's a big question. So, yes, sir. I don't know where I read this, and it might be an urban myth, but I, the Japanese were supposed to have left a large cache of gold that was never found. Yamashita's gold. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, no, I mean, I mean I, I, in fact, I got contacted recently by like this, these producers for like Discovery Channel or one of those that wanted to, they'd sent somebody over there hunting around for it and everything. And, and so that sort of floated around that, you know, the Japanese buried, you know, a railroad car full of gold somewhere in the mountains. And, and the reality is there's, there's, no, there's no evidence of that. Uh, Yamashita gets to the Philippines in October, and uh, he literally gets there about eight or nine days before um, the invasion of Leyte. And he's just slammed from then on with you know, the Americans at Leyte, then Mindoro, then Luzon. There's no evidence they had that kind of wealth squirreled away, uh, or that they would have kept it in the Philippines had they had it and not sent it out. I mean, the Japanese took all these pains and efforts to ship thousands of American prisoners of war out of the islands in advance of MacArthur's return in order to use them for slave labor and things like that, you certainly think they would have taken all that wealth with them in order to be able to fund the war effort. Uh, because the Japanese at that point were materially bankrupt. You know, their, their, their economy was collapsing and everything like that, so they wouldn't have left it behind. That said, I, I did have this conversation with Rico Jose, who's like the Philippines' preeminent scholar of World War II at the University of the Philippines, and, and, uh, and, and, and asked him, and, and he says, you know, if anybody's going to know, it's, it's, it's Dr. Jose, and he said there's no evidence whatsoever. So, 
kind of urban legend more than anything, but it, it, people are still interested in that story. And, you know, who isn't interested in a tri tri railroad car full of gold? So. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, my uncle was, was over there and captured, and he survived the Bataan Death March. He was a West Point grad, and he was in different camps and eventually taken to, to Japan, mm -hmm. uh, where Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then returned to Manila. They'd fixed the airport and came back to came back to, uh, to San Francisco. But he had a, before he got caught, he wrote a letter. We have it. It says, this is probably the last letter I'll ever write. We've run out of food. We've run out. You know, we've eaten all the rats we can find, et cetera. Um, and I have this I have this gold watch that was given in Anderson, South Carolina, mm -hmm. came from there. And uh, I gave it to a woman and to take into town. But I know they robbed the jewelry. You know, they, mm -hmm. that would be the first thing they would do. So that's it for my watch. When he got back to Manila, uh, they found the girl. And she went mm. in her backyard and dug it up. Wow. So That's we have the gold watch and then one for my father also, kind of matching watches. But um, he came back. He was a career, career. he was a lieutenant colonel. He was a career, career guy. Um, and he, he, he died in a parachute drop. Oh. Um, he was prepared. He was a Rhodes Scholar also. Um, but, the, you know, there was no Rhodes Scholars going on during the war, so everybody was kind of waiting in turn to go over. But anyway, a parachute landed on him into the Mississippi River. It was canvas, and he, he died in, oh, in 1950. Wow. And his ashes were buried in, in Anderson. Um, but we, we discovered a will he wrote, and he says, I know my mother is glad I'm near her now, but I want to be back in the Philippines with the people that I, I lived and died with. Yeah. So we hired an airplane. We hired a single-engine airplane. We exhumed some ashes from the, from the cemetery, and we hired an Episcopal priest. And we sent over the ashes to Manila, and they flew up, and they, and they, they, they dumped the ashes over Manila Bay and wow. read this poem he had written. So we felt like we would, the yeah. story ended very, you know, very nicely. Wow, that just gave me chills. Yeah, and I, I, I do this, and I, it's it's uh, two brothers from Anderson. Yeah, uh, it's right up the road from me. I, I know. That's, yeah, that's yeah, why I, I said that. I went to school in Spartanburg, so I, okay. <laughs> yeah, Wofford. So I, well, I'm go to the Anderson County Museum, and yeah. it, we're kind of the feature thing. Absolutely. Um, if you're a tenth grader in in South Carolina, and you're doing American history, and you're doing South Carolina history, you'll see a video of me, you know, being interviewed about this. That's awesome. Uh, my, my father, I'm going on a little bit long here, but. My, no, my father went to Clemson. Mm -hmm. Clemson was military then, okay? And he was valedictorian. For that, he got to be a White House aide under FDR. Mm -hmm. And he was one of 20 people that got to go over with the Enigma Ultra Secret decoding team at Bletchley Park. And so that's where he was with, with Omar Bradley, you know, mm -hmm. on, on a one-to-one -one basis every day. Um, but he, when, he, when, when Europe was finished, he, he, he was, purple was the code that was used over there, and he got up to speed on purple, and he was sent over there looking for his brother. But he, he never found him, but Bill, Bill had, come back, had come back to the States. But uh, it's, I, I give this a lot of places, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll have a person, Westminster Canterbury here, I gave it there, and uh, it, I have a whole show I, I did. It's now, it's now in Anderson. Mm -hmm. But... Um, the, a man was, I could see a Sunday morning, uh, the wife said, you have a mission, go get the Sunday paper, right? And so I was sitting out in the hall and I was doing Glenn Miller mm -hmm. coming out of the, in the mood, you know, coming out of the room. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to give him a little time and see what happens. Well, in about a half an hour, he's going, he's doing Europe first, yeah. which is my father. Yeah. And everybody stops at Normandy and they spend a lot of time in Normandy. Mm -hmm. Then they move over to Bill in the Pacific, right? Mm -hmm. So I go in, there he is, and, and there's this man, and he, he doesn't know that's my father. And he has a little, a little clicker. It's called a cricket, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a cricket. And he says, do you mind if I play with this cricket? And I said, no, it's, it's here for you. He started getting into it. It makes a kind of a loud noise. Yeah. And so finally, finally he said, that saved my life. 
And I said, how so? 101st Airborne, uh, blown behind the yeah. enemy lines. I click, you double click, yeah. and we know we're Americans. Yeah. So I got him to come up. I said, would you mind, if I get everybody to sit down, would you mind going up front and talking yeah. to us? And he did. Meanwhile, his wife came in, yeah. sat down next to me. The mission was not accomplished. He did yeah. not bring the newspaper back. Yeah. And so I said, is that, is, that, is that your husband? Yeah, and he's never done that before. Wow. So it turned into kind of powerful stuff, and Absolutely. we try to remember that. Great. I'll say, grab me afterwards. I'd like to give you one of my cards and connect up because okay. I'd, I'd like to learn more about the uh, about your. Um, That'd be great. Yeah. So grab me afterwards on that. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry to take too long. Yeah. No. No. You're great. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was wondering if this rampage of Manila informed Harry Truman's decision to drop the atom bomb. That's a great question, and I will tell you, the, uh, there is no doubt that the Battle of Manila had a huge effect on the, the American generals who were there and that saw it. In fact, General Oscar, Oscar Griswold, who was there prosecuting the war in Manila, wrote in his diary afterwards, is this what we're going to have to deal with if we have to retake Hong Kong, Singapore, Tokyo? Uh, I mean, are we going to have, I mean, if you look at the destruction that 17,000 troops were able to enact on this amazing cultural city, literally destroy it, for which it's never recovered from really even today. So there was no, that, that factored in. This takes place, uh, the Battle of Manila wraps up on March 3rd. On March 9th, we begin the firebombing campaign against Japan with the big raid on Tokyo, uh, which is subject to my next book, so hang tight. We'll, get, we'll, we'll be covering that here in a couple of years. Uh, so the air war was going on at this time, but it was really ramping up. And there's no doubt that the pressure that Curtis LeMay and, the, uh, and, and Hap Arnold, who was the commander of the Army Air Force felt that if they couldn't end the war through bombing and force the Japanese to surrender, that it was going to end up in a scenario where we were going to have to have the infantry and the cavalry going into the Japanese streets. And we wanted to prevent that because it wasn't just Manila. I mean, we had seen this level of fanaticism, you know, in New Guinea, on Tarawa and these other places. So we knew that the Japanese were going to fight that way. Uh, so all, all of that sort of does factor in. But you have to remember the air war and all that was already underway. I mean, the B-29 was built just for that purpose. It had been you know, brought in, brought online in 1944. Um, the, uh, the atomic bombs had actually been under development for several years as well. So all of those things were factoring in. Uh, one of the things I will say is even though after the firebombings that took place of Tokyo, we were looking at the Japanese intelligence of that, and the firebombings weren't having the desired effect on the Japanese as far as prompting them to want to surrender. And so I think all of that sort of plays in. It's not just one single factor. It's sort of this... It just it's, all of these things sort of play into that ultimate decision-making process at the end of the war. But there's no doubt that this level of violence that they saw in Manila reinforced the need to use the air arm to bring about an end to the, to the war. Yep. So I think we've got uh, microphones walking around. Yes. This may be a stretch, but mm -hmm. when you were talking about the trial of mm -hmm. the general after the war, did the defense of the general and the general conduct of the trial, mm -hmm. did that have any future impact on how we, Truman, et cetera, thought about the Nuremberg trial that would go forward after this as to just how, what lessons can we learn mm -hmm. from here that may apply to Nuremberg? Yeah, and I can't speak because I haven't done a, a lot of research on what on Nuremberg, but the trial of Yamashita and, and some of those early trials were out. Ultimately, the trials in Asia and the, and the trials in Nuremberg 
were involved panels of allies and things like that. And what we did in the war crimes trial against Hideki Tojo and everything else, this was outside the scope of all of that. I mean, this was an American-run trial in the Philippines. Those five judges were all American generals underneath MacArthur. Uh, and so it was sort of outside the organizational process for the, the military tribunal of the Far East that came later. And so there's no doubt this is a you know, what happened with Yamashita, what happened with um, these early trials was definitely a um, very controversial and remains so today. In fact, I mean, when I was doing my research on the Battle of Manila, that was one of the things you see written about most out of it was this trial and sort of its unorthodox nature. But it is sort of an anomaly compared to the others, larger trials out there. But I can't speak to whether or not this one trial directly affected Nuremberg, only just to say that these trials were not part of that larger process that were done. These were purely American-led trials. Mm -hmm. Sir. Yes. Uh, one comment. I had researched this at the time. Uh, the, at this time, there were seven five-star uh, admirals and generals, and at least three of them strongly opposed dropping the bomb. That included uh, MacArthur and Eisenhower and King. Eisenhower, people don't realize, it was a Jehovah's Witness at the time. And uh, Arnold strongly supported it, and Curtis LeMay was against it. He said, why do you drop it? He said, give me a week on those cities, and they'll disappear anyway. Yeah. So it, uh, there was not, uh, the military was certainly not, they were, for the most part, the highest ranks, opposed to dropping the bomb, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, MacArthur among them. Mm -hmm. I think there's some questions up front. And yep. What knowledge or role, if any, did Yamamoto have in this situation? Admiral Yamamoto? Yes. Well, he was deceased at this point. And you know, he had died um, uh, in April of 1943. And so by this point in the war, uh, you know, he'd been, he was killed down in the Solomon Islands. Uh, and, and a pretty incredible story in and of itself, but he was killed on the one-year anniversary of the Doolittle Raid. We shot him down uh, in a pretty amazing raid. Uh, back then. So he was out of the picture by the time the Battle of Manila came around. Last question. I wonder if you could describe how you go about getting the research and pulling mm -hmm. all this together. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, fortunately, as soon as the Battle of Manila ended, American generals and officers looked at the city and, and, and recognized that it was less of a battlefield and more of a crime scene. And so it, starting in MacArthur, in fact, on February 17th, sort of midway through the battle, sends out an order that all atrocities are to be investigated. And so that sets in motion a chain of events and activities that go throughout this, at the wake of the battle throughout the summer into the fall, and even really into the years after that, in which an army of war crimes investigators went out and tracked down the survivors of all these atrocities and interviewed them, often in field hospitals, and uh, took photographs of their wounds. Those that were able, they took back to the atrocity sites. They mapped them out. They sketched them out and created literally tens of thousands of pages of documentation to support all this. All those files are actually in the National Archives in Washington. And so I spent an entire summer up there going through them all and copying them. I could copy about 4,000 pages a day using a digital camera. I then had to convert all those to big PDFs. And then I built a database in order to track all the atrocity victims by their last names and whatnot. 
in order to, you know, be able to, and, and, and sort of have key words, you know, like they'd been attacked at the German club, for instance, or the Red Cross, things like that, in order to be able to search it. Because when you're dealing with that much information, you're really in the business of information management. And you can have some great quote from somebody, and then a year later when you're writing the book and you're thinking, yeah, where was that quote? You'll never find it again. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just gone. And so once I did all of that and I, you know, built, I had to build my own old maps out of the old, uh, uh, terrain files because Manila is a very different city today from 1941 so I could trace it all then I went to the Philippines and I went and I tracked down there's fortunately there's a survivors organization over there and they were amazing you know they put me in touch with survivors they've got their own archive that I was able to go through and I went and I walked a lot of these atrocity sites I stayed in the Manila hotel which has all been redone uh, and, and, and in order to be able to write about these places and I think one of the like for give me an example too and on the one hand it's been a long time since all this took place and on the other hand it's really still a pretty brief you know, 74 years, not that long ago. And that really was hammered home to me when I went to LaSalle College, which is the scene of one of these really awful atrocities in which the Japanese had come in. It's a, it's a Catholic school there on Taft Avenue in Manila. It still exists today. And a whole bunch of families had taken refuge there, and they'd taken refuge inside the chapel up on the second floor. And as the Americans were closing in, the Japanese decided they were going to go in there and kill them all. And so they came in through the back of that chapel, and all the, all the families were in the pews. And there are two big, long rows of pews that lead up to the altar at the end. And so there's pathways down the outside, and there's a center pathway. And the, the Marines came in, and they fanned out. And they went down, and they started bayoneting everybody. And they ultimately killed you know, several dozen people there. Well, you know, that chapel still there. And so when I was working on the book, I went there. I walked up that stairs that the, the refugees had taken as they were fleeing. I went into the chapel, and I sat there. And as I was sitting there, I looked down into the tile floor and the pattern on it, and it jumped out of my head. I was like, it, it seemed familiar. So I had my laptop with me in my briefcase, and I pulled it out, and I pulled up the old crime scene photographs from it, and it was the same tile. It's like that tile hadn't changed in all those years. And I had another similar story in which uh, one of the Battle of Manila survivors, Jim Litton, is a dear friend of mine, and was huge help to me in my research. He said, James, he said, you know, his family had largely survived. He said... If you really want to understand what it was like for those of us residents, why don't we walk the path that my family took when we were fleeing from the Japanese? And, and I said, that's a great idea. And so we started out from Jim's house, which had been a McDonald's, is now a McDonald's, in downtown Manila. And we went down Florida Avenue, and we stopped. And he showed me the spot where his, uh, their housekeeper had stepped on a landmine and had blown her legs off. And his mother had been very badly wounded as well. His cousin had scooped his mother up, and they were about a block away from the Philippines General Hospital, and they had run down there, and at that time, about 7,000 refugees had crowded inside this hospital. And the Japanese were using that hospital to send artillery to the American side, knowing that the Americans would be reluctant to target a hospital. So his family got in there, and while the doctors were putting his mother back together, his father had taken the family, and they'd gone into the elevator shaft and down into the crawl space underneath the hospital. And they'd spent five days in that crawl space drinking water that they'd scavenged out of the toilet tanks at the hospital just to be able to survive until the Americans finally liberated them. And so, I mean, the, these really powerful moments, you know, have, have, of, of witnessing that history decades later, but still it makes it, you know, walking into the same hallways, seeing that elevator, you know, seeing that tile. I mean, that, that's how I go about doing this kind of research when possible. I mean, that makes it real for me. And when I'm trying to write these stories for you, it makes it all the more real. And I'll shoot video in these places and photographs so that when I'm recreating these scenes, it allows me to do so. And I'll do measurements and things like that. I carry a tape measure, I mean, you know, in order to be able to you know, measure stuff like that to get those details, I think, that make it, that make it real. So. You did a great job telling the story. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys all very much for coming out. So. Yeah.